Hello and welcome back to the podcast where we prod the sheep and beat the wolf. This is episode 83. Are you fighting against God or for him? In our quest to uncover the end time themes buried within the book of Acts, we've begun to unveil the hidden depths and subtle intricacies of the early church's well-developed eschatology. We've learned that eschatology is not for cloud gazers, numerologists, or makers of jumbled charts, but it's for those who are willing to put in the work to see the kingdom of God built. It is not filled with a mass of spiritually overweight spectators who are just as much a consumer of the church as the nutty professor is a consumer of all things fried chicken. But unlike the clumps, this one is not a joke. Instead, the eschatology Luke records for us is one that will help us put our hand to the proverbial plow and break a symbolic sweat. It is for the here and now, not to decode the uncertain events concerning an even even less certain future. No, Acts tells us when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and the other believers and when they began doing miracles in Jerusalem and Samaria, that this was the end of the ages. The end of the ages had come. Now, for some, that end would climax in smoke and flames and devastation and destruction as seen temporally in the events of AD 70, which stands as a type of eternal hell. But for others, that end of the covenant era, the temple, the priesthood, the feast, and all of that would be joyfully replaced by the reign of God's one and only Son, who sat at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies have been put under his feet. Moreover, as we learned last week, his reign would not cease. It would not be paused, nor could it ever be overcome until the whole world, every family on earth, is under the blessings of Almighty God. What a glorious message our friend and brother Luke has been telling us about the end. Now today, as we stand upon the plank of our ninth blog in the book of Acts, my aim is for us to be cast back into those bristling blue waters again with a new tank of oxygen in tow as we plunge down into the depths of of Luke's fifth chapter. But before we put on our snorkel and get our oxygen tank primed and ready, we need to remember the flow of the book of Acts. In Acts 1, Jesus prepares his disciples for what life in the kingdom is going to look like in his absence as they wait for the promised Holy Spirit to come and empower them. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus sends the third member of the Trinity upon them in dramatic fashion, causing a crowd to swell in the the streets of Jerusalem and Peter to preach this dynamic sermon where about 3,000 people are added to the church. Now, after that first powerful sermon in Acts chapter 3, the apostles began performing miracles in the city, drawing another large crowd, and Peter once again preaches another powerful sermon. Now, out of fear that these events are going to spark some sort of uncontrollable revival where the Jewish leaders lose the crowds and they all go following Jesus, the Jewish leaders began persecuting and arresting the believers in Acts chapter 4, especially those who served God publicly at the temple. As the narrative unfolds in Acts chapter 5, we find that the apostles were released only to be swiftly summoned again before the Sanhedrin, which was the paramount Jewish council of that day. Their great transgression centered upon the fact that they were steadfast and unmovable in proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, despite explicit directives to desist from this missionary activity. This resolute commitment to the faith 
prompts vehement opposition from the religious authorities who sought to quell the burgeoning Christian movement once and for all. Acts 5, 33-39, therefore, emerges as a pivotal juncture within the narrative. It is a moment when the Sanhedrin, incensed by the apostles' unwavering conviction to continue unabated, prepare themselves to take severe and even bloody action against the apostles as they had against our Lord. However, amid the maelstrom of tumult and theological fervor, an unlikely voice of moderation rose in the form of Gamaliel, a respected Pharisee and a learned doctor of the Jewish law, who plays prominently in today's passage along with two false messianic figures that we will hear about in a moment. He, Gamaliel, ardently advocates for the council to proceed with extreme caution lest they be found fighting against God. The events chronicled in Acts chapter 4 through 5 encapsulate a volatile chapter in the annals of the early Christian church's history, and they teach us much about eschatology. Let us read verses 33 through 39 for a moment, just so that we can have the context. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is from men, it will be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now, first century Judea, a region under Roman occupation and rule, was simmering with messianic expectations at this time. The Jewish populace was longing for a deliverer, a Messiah, who would come and free them from the shackles of Roman oppression as as Moses had done back in Egypt in days long past. The fervor and anticipation that characterized this era is surprising on the one hand since their actual Messiah had already come and they murdered him. Beyond the hypocrisy and the foolishness of this heightened desire for an eschatological Messiah set the stage for several charismatic leaders to rise up as false messianic figures and to lead many people astray. In that sense, these events are not surprising at all since Jesus predicted that they were going to happen, Matthew 24, 11. As per usual, Jesus is correct and the futurists are wrong. Now on to the narrative. Let's examine the first character in this narrative, who is Gamaliel. He gives us wisdom in an age of tumult. Acts 5, 34 introduces Gamaliel, a Pharisee and a respected doctor of Jewish law. His counsel to the Sanhedrin stands out even to this day as a voice of moderation amidst the crazy and the turmoil that was the Pharisee and Sanhedrin approach to the Christian church. The wisdom and sagacity that Gamaliel exhibits 
are not confined to the New Testament, but we see him show up in extra biblical sources, most notably the works of the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who paints a vivid portrait of this revered figure. Josephus, in his Antiquity of the Jews, provides invaluable insight into the character and the influence of Gamaliel. He describes him as a highly esteemed teacher of the law, known for his leniency and his cautious approach to decision-making. Gamaliel's counsel in Acts chapter 5 aligns seamlessly with his historical reputation for advocating prudence and temperance. This correlation adds a rich layer to our understanding of his character and the unlikely role that he played in the early Christian community, as well as the irony of how the Jews did not take his wise counsel. The second character in the narrative is named Thutis, a charismatic messianic claimant. Verse 36 introduces this man, a figure whose life is deeply intertwined with the tumultuous political landscape of the first century Jews. Thutis, a charismatic leader, boldly proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, and he managed to gather a significant following around him. Josephus, again, the eminent Jewish historian, explicitly mentions Thutis in his writings. He reports that Thutis gathered a group of followers, promising to part the Jordan River at his command as Elijah had before him. However, this rebellion was swiftly crushed by Roman authorities, leading, Thutis, leading to Thutis's demise and total discrediting of his potential messiahship. The historical accounts of Thutis and Josephus's writings validate the New Testament's portrayal, emphasizing the fervent messianic expectations that characterize the era, and he becomes a type of the Jewish people. Said of the Jewish people following after Gamaliel in a very reasonable response to the uprising of Christ and his and his disciples, the Jewish leaders instead followed Thutis, not necessarily in claiming to be the Messiah, but in going with him to their doom. The final character in this narrative is Judas of Galilee, who was a rebellious leader, again, another type of the Jewish people. Verse 37 introduces him as the claimant to the messianic throne. He too, along with Thutis, led a revolt against the Roman rule, asserting his authority as the Messiah. Extra biblical sources again provide a wealth of information on this intriguing figure. For instance, Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews offers a comprehensive account of Judas of Galilee's activities. He describes him as the founder of the fourth philosophy, which was a movement vehemently opposed to the Roman taxation and authority. He describes him as a man who led an armed rebellion that was aimed to resist the Roman census, and his actions ultimately led to a significant conflict with the Roman forces that likewise was snuffed completely out by the Romans. Josephus recounts how the revolt was suppressed with ruthless reprisals. The historical record of Judas of Galilee and Josephus' works further underscore, underscores the volatile nature of messianic claims and the profound consequences that would come to bear on first century Judah, who, instead of following Gamaliel, as we've already said, followed Thutis and Judas. Eschatological Illusions Acts 5, 33-39, also, when viewed through an eschatological lens, reveals a deeper layer of significance. In the broader context of the early Christian belief, the disciples of Jesus were profoundly influenced by his teaching regarding the end times. A particularly relevant passage is found in Matthew 24, where Jesus predicts the emergence of false messiahs and intense tribulations were soon to come. 
the mention, the mere mention of figures like Thutis and Judas of Galilee, who claimed the Messianic title and led revolts against the Roman authorities, strongly supports the prophecies of Christ in Matthew 24, 10. Along with that, the uptick in sudden persecution in the exact same context as the mentioning of the rise of false messiahs is precisely what Jesus was pointing to in Matthew 24, uh, verse 9. Moreover, in John 15 through 16, Jesus speaks about the coming of the advocate, the Holy Spirit, which just happened in Acts chapter 3. And alongside of that, the world's rejection of his disciples. Jesus even told them that the men of Jerusalem would soon butcher them, thinking that they were doing service to God. He said that the Holy Spirit was coming to bring judgment upon them because of their lack of righteousness. That's all John 16. Thus, the unfolding events in the book of Acts can be seen as dramatic fulfillment of Jesus's prophetic words, indicating not only the alignment of historical circumstances, but the inclusion of these as eschatological events. Fighting against God. The passage in Acts 5, 33-39 also reveals a profound irony in the unfolding of its events. Gamaliel's counsel to the Sanhedrin urges caution, and he wisely points out that the history has shown the fate of those who claim to be Messiahs. Thutis and Judas of Galilee were charismatic leaders who declared themselves to be the Messiah and led revolts, but they were met with violent ends and their movement crumbled into obscurity. Gamaliel's words warn the Sanhedrin, for if this plan or action is from men, it will be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be found fighting against God. The irony lies in the fact that by opposing the apostles and their proclamation of Jesus as the true Messiah, the Jewish religious leaders were unwittingly putting themselves in the position where they were fighting against God. Their zeal to, to suppress the burgeoning Christian movement conflicted with the divine purpose of Almighty God, and they were being punished for it, just like Judas and Thutis. Furthermore, it, this is a cautionary tale for you and I, and a stark reminder of the potential consequences of what it'll look like when you resist the work of God. History is filled with examples of individuals and institutions that oppose God's plan only to be found on the wrong side of divine providence. The Jews' relentless persecution of the early church ultimately led to the destruction of their temple and their city in AD 70. And if we oppose God today, for similar or for different reasons, we will be left in the same smoldering rubble. Fighting for God. As we reflect on the ironies that are presented in Acts chapter 5, it becomes evident that our actions are either going to align with God's divine plan or they're going to lead us into opposition to his purposes. The challenge for you and I as believers and as followers of Christ is not to look at this passage with apathy, but is to look at it and see that we must join the fight for God rather than fighting against God. The early Christians in Acts understood the urgency of their mission, and they were willing to endure persecution, imprisonment, and even death in order to advance the message of Christ. They were not merely spectators, but they were active participants in building the kingdom of God on earth. And today, in our modern era, where is that motivation today? 
Now, we may not be like the, the Jews of the first century who were fighting against the Christian church. We might not be actively fighting against the Christian church, but are we actively fighting for the Christian church? See, the, the sin today is not the aggression against Jesus and his disciples that, that the first century church endured. No, today the sin is apathy and laziness and slothfulness of the Christian church who refuses to get involved with the mission. In many circles, the eschatological discussions abound on what are the signs of the time or the mark of the beast or is the monster energy drink can a symbol of 666 and if I drink it, am I going to be damned to hell? Like this is ridiculous. It's crucial for us to remember that our primary focus is not on cloud gazing and chart watching and all of the silly, ridiculous things that you see in so many different circles. Our primary focus should be on advancing the gospel and expanding the influence of Jesus Christ in our world. Instead of getting caught up in speculations about the end times or various controversies in a woke and splintered world, instead of laziness and apathy and disenchanted and disengaged Christianity, we must train our minds to be focused on action. All of our lives are to be lived out for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. We don't live for our job. We don't live for our family. We don't live for our friends and our hobbies and whatever else. We live for Jesus Christ. All of our lives are to be lived out for his glory, for his honor, and for the enjoyment of God. And let that be our motivation for living, my friends. The air in our lungs, the meat and potatoes on our plate, the scotch in our glasses, the cigars on our lips, whatever you want to say, all of it redounds for the glory of God. So use it for the glory of God. In conclusion, Acts chapter 5 reminds us that our actions matter. Our aggression against Christ and our apathy for Christ will leave us under the weight of his punishing wrath. Instead, we have a choice today. We can fight against God and his purposes in the world and it'll bring us to ruin or we can fight with him. We can join him in his battle and see the world come actively under his lordship. According to Jesus... If you are not explicitly for him, then you are actually against him. You will either give all of your life in the service of Christ, or you will be using your energies to perpetuate insurrections and rebellions. There is no neutrality in the kingdom of God. You are either for him or you are, or you are against him. And that is... Let us be humble and let us be fervent. Let us labor to see Jesus' kingdom built both here, now, and forever. And until next week, be blessed. Pick up your shovel, pick up your pickaxe, pick up your Bible, and get to work. We'll see you next time on the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. My goal is to inspire the church of Jesus Christ to stop sitting on their hands and to get to work. Everything that we do is to be about building his kingdom and advancing his mission. So if you will, join me in that work and in that prayer. If you like this show and it's been a blessing to you, then smash the like button. Help us by getting the content out to more people. Share it, post it, do whatever you like. And if the Lord leads you to financially contribute to this ministry and to this work, go to theshepherds.church, www.theshepherds.church, and click on the Give tab and donate any amount that the Lord would lead. All of the gifts that you give to the Shepherds Church will be used 
to support ministries like this, where we are going to see a pagan land called Massachusetts set ablaze for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. With that, I hope you are blessed. I hope that you find creative ways to serve your king this day. And until next time, may God richly bless you.